Welcome to the Inspirational Insights, Insight to Action podcast. My name is Donna Jones. I'm your host. This is the place you come for different perspectives on how to move organizations forward in the world, reconnect back to a much higher purpose, both at a personal leadership level, right the way through into why the company exists. Today, I'm really delighted to have Nicholas Petit, who is the Senior Director of Culture for GSK Vaccines, headquartered in Belgium. GSK has about 17,000 employees worldwide with sites in Europe, Asia, America, and includes both R&D as well as manufacturing sites. Uh, the company is world leading with a very broad pro- portfolio of vaccines. Around 80% of the doses manufactured in GSK sites are shipped to low and middle income countries. Nicholas was a speaker at the ONA Summit, the Organizational Network Analysis Summit, December 1st and, uh, to 3rd in 2021. He's talked about the transformation process using ONA with Hilton Barber. I'll put the link for that in the show notes. Why is Nico here today? Well, in listening to Nico, what touched me the most was his depth and profound understanding of what working with the informal networks in an organization means to leaders at all levels, because the data is sensitive. And it calls for a return of humanity. I'm really delighted to have you here, uh, Nico. I'd really love it if you started off by explaining what organizational network analysis is so that we're all on the same page together here. Thank you, Donna. Really nice to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. I'll start off explaining what it is for me and how we've used it at GSK Vaccines. Organizational network analysis is about understanding the relationships between people. You take whatever group and then you want to know within that group who is connected to whom. So you can ask a bunch of questions or you can just look at the exchanges. Both of them are different types of network analysis. One is active because you collect data actively and the other one is passive because you collect data passively without people knowing. Because of the the privacy direction in the world, we are more and more uh, resorting to active ONA. So we ask for uh, consent of people. And then we just ask them very simple questions. Who do you go to if you want to know what's really the real news in the organization. Who who do you go to? Who do you trust most if you are in trouble and you want some advice and things like that? By collecting what people answer to those questions, they give you names, basically. Then you have a little algorithms in the background and calculates who are the most connected, where are the shortest path from one person to another. It's mostly based on graph theory. It gives you a good understanding of a particular network, how healthy it is, if people are isolated and not isolated. We used it at GSK Vaccines to identify the nodes in that network, the ones who are probably the most important because the most connected. We wanted to do that because we wanted to identify the people who others would look up to, would be inspired by. We wanted to change inspire the organization with different sets of behaviors that would go in the direction which we thought was probably uh, better for the organization. We identified 1,000 of them through different network analysis in different countries, and then we engaged with them, started to change the culture of the organization. That was three, three years ago. You had a small team, and you have data that's got names on it. How, what happens when you go to present that to the, the leadership level? What happens when you take that forward? The first thing that people say is, wow, <laughs> really interesting, really interesting, because 
you know that people have connections with one another. We all have connections with one another. And very typically in a meeting where a decision is made, you go out of the meeting and then you start chit-chatting with others in the corridor. We all know that this is where the real thing happens. But the thing is, this is most of the time very invisible. And this is a big frustration for many leaders not to know what people say in their back. And so knowing suddenly that they are in this parallel world, this informal connection world that runs next to the formal world where the leaders are sitting. By the way, they're also sitting in the other world. <laughs> they have their own informal world as well on the side. But they would like to know who in their employees is really influential. The thing is, usually they want to know because they want to reinforce their power, because they want to make sure that what they want done is really going to be done. And so the first reaction they got when we said, okay, now we have a list is like, give me the list. I want to know. I want to know who those people are who I'm going to bring in my office and say, now and you, you, I know you're influential and therefore I want you to do this and that because I'm struggling to convince them. It's obvious they should do that and they don't do it. So please help me and do this. That's what we were really afraid would happen and is exactly what happened. But we had discussed that extensively before and we had decided we, we would never give the list. So we didn't. And so what happens next? It's a tension. You have tension inside. You have this leader in front of you, VP, senior VP, whoever, and who's looking at you in the eyes and saying, I don't think you, un you understood what I said. I want you to give me that list. And it's really difficult. It, it was fortunate that we had been discussing this in the team before, and we knew that we would stick to that principle. I can explain why maybe a little bit better. We really said, no, we, we don't want to give you that list because those people may very well be in your team, but their influence they got through years and years of trust building around them. And that trust they built belongs to them only, and it does not belong to you. And so if they want to do something with that trust, if we say, do you want to help us? And they say, yes then we can do something with that. But when I say we, I don't mean the leader, because usually the leader of that person has power over that, over that person. So if that leader says, would you like to help me? There's a good chance that person is going to hesitate before saying no. And that creates psychological unsafety for that person. So there's a risk that the person says, okay, I'll help you. But while doing that, the person is going through a very difficult time thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be instrumentalized by that guy. I don't even know what he wants me to do. I don't know what my friends and colleagues are going to say when they know that he expects me to play a role, which by the way, should be his role and not mine. And if he's not good at you know, conveying a message, well, tough for him, but it's not for me to compensate for that. In the process, I may actually lose that trust that I have that took me so long to build and is probably the main reason why I'm coming to work. I'm going to change manager. Maybe next year I'm going to be in another team. But those relationships I built with those people over the years are worth everything. So I don't want to compromise that. We really tried in our team to put ourselves in their shoes and understand what it really means to be nominated by your peers. This was something really interesting because we, we did some videos where we asked people, we interviewed people and how they were feeling and 
it's amazing when you ask them how do you feel about being an influencer having elected by your by their, your peers you should see this in their eyes it's unbelievable they look at you their eyes are blinking they have stars everywhere because they were nominated by their peers and what they tell us is i'm so proud i'm so proud for having been elected not necessarily for what i do but for who i am and this is the best recognition ever and i cannot disappoint them now they elected me i need to do something for them that's the force on which we were able to build but that force only was there if we were going to respect what the bonds that they have created around them for what it was and not try to in instrumentalize them so that's why we said no to the leaders by giving the 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 list but we did have really interesting conversation with leaders saying well you want to know the list but actually you should know the list if if you are well connected to your team which is your job basically well you should know you should be aware so either you know already in advance or you know because people come to you to tell you that they've been elected if they don't come to you maybe the trust is not there and if the trust is not there maybe you should ask yourself questions are you really playing your role as a leader so that triggered some very interesting conversation actually quite deep for some of them we didn't dare to go there because we felt mm -mm, no not a good idea the person is not ready for what is going to hear but with some of them we had that conversation and it was actually very very powerful yeah how did it change you this is quite an expedition in a way to to embark on something like this in an organization at that size what did you learn from the process yourself Wow, I think I've learned more in three years than I have in, in 25 years of career before that. Because you enter into a world which is the real life, actually, because you really connect with people for who they are, not for what they do. Before that, I was in, in jobs. I, I was pretty successful having missions of increasing responsibilities and so on. And the reason why I, I was given those opportunities is because I was good at delivering what I was doing. I was a, a machine with full of energy and I could deliver, deliver, deliver. And I was really proud of that. What I did not realize is that while delivering, I was not paying enough attention to people around me. I was obsessed by delivering a project, a bottom line figure, what it, whatever it was that was my job at the time. But I was not paying enough attention to the connections between people, sometimes the harm I was doing by pushing too much. Although I was successful from a management point of view because I was delivering what I was asked to deliver, I realized those past three years what it means to really connect and what it can bring if you really connect with people. But that has changed me profoundly. Because I've realized who I am really. I've accepted my weaknesses, which I was trying to conceal before. Oh, I'm going to deliver in, give me that project, give me this, I will do it for you. And oh, Nicola, you're great. This is your promotion. Thank you, boss. And then what's next? I'm up for the next challenge and things like that. But the reality is I was in doubt. I was not sure about what I was doing. I was 
not particularly proud of several of the things I've done because of the impact it had on, on others. There was a disconnection between who I am and what I believe in and what I was doing and praised for. There was some disconnect and uh, can I say the word, maybe shame even sometimes? Now, those past four years, I've reconnected with myself thanks to this movement, thanks to the energy that I could see in people being so proud, having been nominated by their peers. That means the world to me. It changed me really quite deeply, and I will never be the same again. Now, what happens with respect to connection? Let's pick up on that, because one of the things that comes to mind is how people get disconnected in the first place in a workplace, disconnected with themselves, plus the disconnection with the rest. What does business value and how does that create a disconnection that is actually detrimental to the organization? We enter into philosophical questions here. I love that. It's a system. So... There is no simple one cause causing one effect, right? It's much more complex than that. But it's true that everyone working in private organization, and I suppose public is the same, any moment where people are, are brought together and there is some sort of hierarchy, I think games are being played. The first game that is being played is with yourself. Because not being yourself It's just a little lie that leads you to another little lie. And then after a while, you're trapped into a set of lies that you're telling yourself about who you really are. Because you think for some reason, because of your belief system, you think that if you show weakness, and it's mostly about being afraid of failing or being afraid of being seen as someone who's weak. Whereas in business, you need to be tough. And especially when you're a man, maybe, I don't know, there's a whole set of beliefs like this that gets you trapped and you're in there. And so therefore you don't want to show that you are maybe doing something wrong or that you are struggling somewhere. And that's a shame because from a business perspective, that means that failing is not an option and you cannot show that you're struggling somewhere. Then you're probably going to hide things. And if you're hiding things, potentially those things could be problematic for the business or even maybe dangerous because you're hiding something you're struggling with and that could have an impact on the health or safety of someone. This is a lot of what's happening when you see accidents in the workplace. It's people not saying something they already knew was not good or not that was dangerous or someone hopping on the chair to fix something on the wall and the chair has wheels and then the guy was going to fall. You don't say anything because you're afraid of the reaction. You don't know how others are going to react to that, how that person is going to react. Who are you to tell me this? And so you're afraid of your position in the group and are you going to be accepted? You want desperately to be part of the group. You want desperately to be seen as someone positive, successful and so on. And because of all those mechanisms, you are not showing up as yourself and you're not being true to your own values. This becomes intolerable if you look at yourself in the mirror and you see all of that. So you're going to tell yourself lies to make it look okay. Oh, no, but it's because, you know, it's it's just temporary. Or, yeah, I know he was hopping on that chair, but we've done this 100 times and we never had an accident. You know very well that it's not true, that you should not let this happen. And so you tell yourself stories and lies that help you to move ahead. And progressively, you get emotionally disconnected. You get emotionally 
apathetic to your environment because it's the only way to survive. And so if your boss is saying something that you find shocking or something to someone else around you or maybe to you, you're not going to say anything because you're afraid of the impact on you, but you're ashamed of that. And so therefore you build a whole set of stories to be able to survive. And the only way to survive is to get emotionally detached or not committed. Because you're not committed, you don't give all you could give if you were really engaged. And you have this army of consultants and this multi-billion industry of employee engagement surveys and work on your people who are not engaged. Okay, yeah, but you need to ask yourself the right questions and, and put yourself in the shoes of those people and what they go through emotionally to really reconnect them with who they really are and create that environment where it's possible. It has a lot to do with leadership. Mm. Yeah, well said. There's a couple of layers there. One of them is that the impact of working with the networks, the informal networks, is to separate authenticity from pretend perfection in the sense that pretend perfection, which is a function of mechanical style of management. If we talk about mechanical approaches to management, that disconnection goes with. And the other, the deeper part of it is being real, absolutely real. Yes, in those informal network. There is no lie because it's all built on trust. You can smell it miles away if someone is not being themselves, if, if they're lying or trying to manipulate you. And if that's the case, you don't connect with those people. So the people who connect in the informal world, the parallel world that runs in the same company as the one we just talked about, where people are ashamed of what they're doing, well, in the informal connection and the connections they have with their colleagues, they cannot do the same. They have to open up. And so in that world, humanity is back. Humanity is extremely powerful. What I told you about those people who are so proud to have been nominated by their peers, it's unbelievable the level of energy they, they put behind. We just said to them, would you like to help us? We would like to change somehow the behaviors in the organization. but." We don't force you. It's up to you. If, if you want to help us, this is where we would like to go. Some of the places we wanted to go are illustrated by some of the examples I took here. Having the courage to challenge inappropriate behaviors and asking for, for feedback or trying to do things in a, in a different way, um, helping each other, putting yourself in the shoes of other people. All those were behaviors we wanted to, to see in the organization. And we said, would you like to help us? People look at you. Maybe you were not aware before you were nominated. Now you're aware. That gives you a responsibility. But if you don't want to help us, that's fine. We, we can understand. Would you like to help us? It's, it was funny because when they were nominated, leaders told us, okay, well, so they've been nominated in the email that you sent to them to ask them if they want to be part. Of course, you're going to explain what you expect from them, right? Because we know how it works. If you don't explain to them, then of course they're not going to say yes. We know that, we've been in this business forever, so trust us. And we said, well, actually, no, we were not intending to. We were just asking them if they would like to help. Well, if you do that, you know, welcome to the real world. We, you're going to get maybe 20% of people saying maximum 30%. We got 93%. Because if you say to someone who trusts you, can you help me? They will want to help you. 
the question was then back to the leaders. How come you only get 30%? How come? There must be something wrong with the way you ask the question or the level of trust you've built with people. Because if they have trust in you, they will say 93% of the time, yes, I'll help. Let me know how. That was beautiful because then you see all this energy that suddenly was there already but not used. It makes you realize the level of energy you have in organization. If you can unleash that, I, I hate to say potential, it's not a potential, it's there. But unleash that humanity that people have. The moment you, they feel that they can be themselves, they will deliver so much more than they can ever dream of. I think that's one of the thing that organizations will need to work on in the decades to come. As more and more machines are going to be used and, and algorithms and technology is going to be used, the real value of organization will come from the people. The mechanistic approach, you, you use mechanical approach of leaders saying, okay, I have an input and there comes an output. This is the way a machine works, but machines and algorithms will be so much more powerful than us that we won't need to do this anymore. We need to focus on what makes us special and bring value, which is our humanity. This is why I think leadership will need to evolve drastically for this humanity to be able to emerge and take organizations to a different level. Individuals in them will be much happier, not just much more productive. It's not just quantitative, it's also qualitative. They will have better connections with themselves better connections at home with their families if they feel better with their kids. It has a whole lot of impact that goes far beyond uh, the organizational world. Anytime you implement anything that's got change involved, the assumption always is people will resist. People don't like change. There's a whole set of, of beliefs around that. What happened in the work you were doing with resistance and tension and all those things? <laughs> First of all, I don't believe in the fact that people don't like change because we change all the time. Human beings are like that. We change. Our cells change. We have millions of cells dying every second, millions of cells being created. We change. We are a changing thing. So... The fact that we don't like change, I don't quite buy that. I think we, we do like change, actually. But we need to feel safe. Psychological safety is absolutely critical. And if you don't have that, yes, people are going to resist change. I think this is a belief that has been introduced by poor leadership, saying... Yeah, but we try to change and they don't want to change. But is it because they don't want to change or is it because the way you engage them into change? Because the way you build the relationship with them and the trust they have in you. Because if they have trust in you, they will want to change. Ask anyone in an organization. There are many, many different things they want to change. And they don't do it because they're afraid or because they don't feel safe. So they don't act on it. When you say, oh, we're going to change. Well, you know what? I've been around for a number of years. Every time a leader says that, it lasts for a year. And then they come with another program and they want to change this. And then one year later, they want to change that. And okay, I'll just wait and see. But if you're really serious, and if you really lead by example and you keep your promises, 
and you build these relationships with people, they will be behind you 150% with your change. I, I, I really think this is a, a misconception. It was funny because the most resistant we faced was in the higher level of leadership. We had no resistance. Well, I told you about the 93%, right? We had no resistance from the shop floor, from employees. They were actually quite happy. They said, well, yes, we agree. We would like to change that. We are with you. Where we started to see resistance was from leaders telling us, okay, you don't want to give me the list of those people. What are you going to do with them? I need to know. You're playing with my team and it's my job. So I, I need to know. They were very, very suspicious. Some of them started to be you know, passive aggressive, sometimes even more than that, challenging the approach and so on for what I would interpret as fear, fear to lose control, fear to lose power. Some of them understood really well what we were going to do and they were all excited because they said, oh, great, you're going to enter into this informal world with your uh, influencers, which by definition, I don't have access to because I'm in a formal world and I manage a team. And of course, I cannot be both really, or it's very difficult to be both. So that will be an, an adding force to what I already do. Maybe the two together, we could be stronger. Many of them recognized the value of doing that, but some of them resisted. And the higher we went into the hierarchy, the more resistance or suspicion there was. We decided as a team that we would uh, not work for the leadership team of the company, but work for the people. That's one of the other decisions that we had taken very early on in the project. We were in close contact with the CEO who opened doors for us, who wanted to help us. But we said we don't work for those guys. We work for people. We work to create an environment where everyone can thrive, but not to fix something for management to be happy. It's interesting because when we were talking earlier about resistance, that I did a lot of conflict resolution work in the leadership development side. And one source of resistance is in yourself when you don't meet expectations. So I, I couldn't help but think you've got a, a cadre of executives who have a set of expectations about what a change is going to do. And whether that's well communicated or not, when people don't meet that expectation, it equals resistance. The optimal way of functioning is to say, here's what we're trying to achieve. And then people work together to get that done. Uh, I think that's one distinction in terms of process and oversight for, you know, the, the old, like a regular way of transforming a, an organization and working mm. with these beautiful informal networks that bring the energy mm. to it. Yeah. Bring and get energy. I, I got so much energy just connecting with those people. It was, it was so, so wonderful. So you go home at night full of energy instead of depleted. Actually, yes, very much, very, very much. Mm. I'm much more energized than I've ever been before. I don't know if I work harder. It's a different kind of work. It's a lot of connection with people. It's a lot of listening. There is, of course, orchestration of our movement. And there is an element of strategy and making sure that we understand we, we are able to take a helicopter view and, and look at the movement we call it a movement rather than change so look at the movement from a certain distance and and try and see whether the movement is still active and what we need to do to accelerate and so on but 
But most of the time, it's about connecting with people who are struggling with very concrete stuff from daily work, helping them. It's a lot of coaching and accompanying and listening. And just the fact that you listen gives energy back to people and they thank you and you haven't done anything. You just were there listening to them. And uh, it's very inspiring. I got to realize a very different way of achieving results than I have ever thought. I become allergic to those things I was using all the time, all those frameworks and models. And okay, for change, you have four things you need to get right. And there's a McKinsey model. Okay, use that, the eight steps of Kotler, all of those wonderful frameworks. But actually, it goes down to one very simple thing. Are you connected to those people? Because if you are really connected, their energy is going to be huge and you will manage your change in a beautiful way. Yes, you need strategy, and you need, but it's pretty obvious, right? You need stakeholder behind it. You need a good plan. And, but that's very obvious things. The real magic happens when you manage to get people on board and not just political but really the people who are going to do the work by just sharing your own vulnerabilities, your doubts. By doing this, you create a, a safe space for them to also share their doubts and understand that you don't expect them to be perfect, that it's okay to fail, that it's okay to try, even if you're not sure, and that you're not going to judge them if they fail, but you're going to be there to listen to their learnings and go to the next step with the learning in, in, in the pocket. And you do this one, two, three times, and then wonderful things happen. You've got a lot of remote uh, offices. Did that play into establishing these connections at all? How does distance or cultural differences, did that play into the capacity of the organization to really energize well if you've seen data that organizational network analysis can deliver some of that data was generated during covid times before after during and after and they all show the weak ties the, the connections with people you see from time to time and you're loosely connected to and you meet at the coffee machine from time to time you like those people but you don't interact with them very often they are very important uh, for you to feel good and to innovate, to have new ideas. And those connections were lost during uh, COVID. But the other types of connections with the ones who you work closely with were reinforced. And those people we have identified as uh, influencers in our network are those people who have the highest number of connections. They were actually even closer to their core connections Yes, they lost a few of the loose connections, but they were closer to the core connections. And so actually, I think, to that extent, COVID situation helped to reinforce connections between people. It, it may sound a little bit counterintuitive, but it's because we are desperate at home not to meet anyone. When we meet with someone virtually, like you and I right now, we want to connect. We desperately want to connect. And so we are going to tell each other things that we maybe would never dare to share at the coffee machine at work. Actually, I see what is behind you in your background. Maybe I'm going to hear your dog barking soon. And I'll, I'll know more about your life. You'll know more about my life. So it creates a, an even stronger connection during those times. So both the fact that you 
away and you need. And also because you see people in a different environment, create stronger connection. In my case, during COVID, I had to connect with all of those influencers just like before. And I actually got more of those connections that I had before because they wanted to connect with me too, because they, like me, were alone at home. Not all of them. Some people were on the site. They still were seeking those conversations and those informal chats. It's mostly informal, by the way, because we are leading a project, but they know what they have to do. We know how they can help and we know what to tell them so that they want to help. It's all quite well understood. The magic comes when you start showing that you don't do this because of your own delivery targets, but you do this because you care, because you sincerely care about those people, because you like them, because you you want them to feel great, because you are sincerely sorry that because of COVID, their life is more complicated. That feeling shows, and that is the greatest, I think, motivator ever. The thing is, if you do this because you think you try to manipulate them and you think that if you say this and that, it's going to get them motivated, they will feel it. So it needs to be genuine and comes from the heart. If it does, if you really believe in it, and if you really show a real compassion, then amazing things can happen. Because this is the way we are. We are human beings before we are employees, before we are a project leader, before we have a 25-year career in a particular role or particular company. We're foremost human beings and we just want to be loved and we just want to love others, right? No? It sounds very trivial because we're like, oh, there is no place for love in, in an organization. Well, I'm not sure. I think we're just the same in organizations as we are at home. Why would it be different? I think I told you that story. When you're at, at work, suddenly you, you you put your costume and your mask and you're like, okay, I want objectives and how are we going to deliver this? And when are we going to deliver that? And what's going wrong? And let's have a meeting to to solve that. When you're back at home, where are your KPIs? Where are your problem-solving meetings and all of that? They're gone. And why we're just the same people. So there must be a different way. Did you see any shift in the uh, executive stance? And, and related to that, any thoughts on what a CEO needs to bring to this kind of work when, when you're implementing uh, something inside the organization using organizational network analysis? You can use the organizational network analysis at many different levels. In this case, we used it for the whole company. So it was a very strategic thing and CEO needed to be on board. You can use it for a much smaller team for a very small subset of the organization. Then the CEO does not play a big role. In the case of culture transformation, you cannot transform the culture of just one little part of the company because it's a system. And so everything being connected, you need to work at the company level. Sometimes you can work at just a business unit level, but I don't believe too much in this because people from a business unit are connected with others from another business unit. If they feel that the behavior they're having in their environment is not in line with what others are having, they're going to start doubting. When you transform culture, it needs to be at the company level. In this case, we were very, very lucky to have the CEO completely behind us. It was 
a very different approach, you know, peer-to-peer, bottom-up. I explained about some of the frictions we've had with leadership. You cannot have those frictions not knowing that your back is covered. We felt safe because he was constantly behind us saying, you're doing a great job, keep going, keep going. We were three years into the program and we felt maybe it's the time to face down. We're seeing great progress. So pretty much we're quite comfortable. He said, no, no, you need to keep going. You're doing a great job. I'm sure you can do even better next year. I'm fully with you. Whatever budget you want, so don't repeat that, please. But whatever budget you <laughs> want, you there. get. How many people do you need? I will give them to you. It's wonderful to have a leader behind you like this. And of course, we don't believe what he says, but it's not about believing. We know if we ask for 200 people, he's not going to give us 200 people, right? But, but the fact that he says that, we know he trusts us, and therefore, we we cannot try to fool him by pretend we are going to be extra careful what we ask because we want to be loyal to him because he's he's supporting us in such an open way. That's what I would reflect as the importance of, to me, what a leader really is. It was very inspiring. Our CEO is, for me, a real leader. He has a vision and he was covering us, whatever happens, he was behind us. I remember a session we had with his boss, the CEO of the whole GSK company. He was the boss of GSK vaccines. The whole GSK company is three, four times the size of vaccines. His boss was there and we were explaining what we wanted to do. And she was going like the old style leaders. Okay, get to the point. I don't have a lot of time. Okay, tell me. I don't believe in this. Next. How are you going to measure? No, I don't want that. I want you to measure this way. And we were so disappointed by that because we felt we had nailed something and we had something really interesting. And she wouldn't just not listen. During the meeting, he was blinking at us to keep us in the meeting and active. He was making jokes and and looking at us right in the eyes to convey his confidence and so on. And after the meeting, can you stay? Can you stay for a second? Just debriefing quickly. He said, don't listen to your doubts right now. You are doing great things. I'm with you. We are going to do this. Whatever that person has said. That was extraordinary. We were the kings of the world. We just did it. It was so incredible. That energy that he gave us, any leader can give to his people by just caring and being attentive to what they were feeling. Remember, what he told us is not, you did a great job. He said, don't listen to your doubts. So he was reading in our faces that something was going inside us that we were suddenly not sure anymore. And he just reestablished that. I think this is real leadership. I totally agree. If we look at the qualities that he exhibited in that moment, it's a strong sense of empathy. It's a clear connection to what's going on in the room, in the space. And there's a a high value for humanity that he brings to the equation, which is pretty essential. If you're working with networks that are based on trust and human connection, if you don't have that value for humanity, it's not going to work. 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No wonder he was ready to try something like that if he's himself like that. If anyone, advice to anyone who would want to do this, it's going to be very difficult to do a similar kind of change based on humanity or trying to bring humanity back in the workplace if your CEO doesn't believe in it. If your CEO is skeptical, cynical, emotionally not committed, like we said earlier, because he spent his whole career there. And in order to get there, he had to compromise on so many things that after a while he becomes like a non-human. <laughs> he has his costume all the time and, and he does not really let his own personality shine and show. Then don't go for it because you're, you're going to struggle at some point. It's going to create frustration for you and for everyone that you have brought on board with you. Make sure you have a CEO with you. Can you tell us a little bit about measurement? Because organizations love measuring things, including the things you can't measure. Obviously, as a CEO, he's looking at things and he's seeing what he values. But that may not show up in the metrics or the analytics. Where does measurement fit in? It's another very interesting discussion. We could go <laughs> two hours on this. Well, we um, won't. <laughs> no, I'll try to, to stick to five minutes. <laughs> measurement is the... in. The former world where you put your mask and your costume on when you get to work. Measurement is everything. It's everything because you're going to have to cover your back, whatever happens. You need to be able to show, I had this problem and this is how I know, and therefore you need data for that. And this is how I did a great job. This is the data. So you cannot be against me or whatever. And I'm safe. Because the whole thing is about being safe in the office. You try to survive. That's all you do. You don't try to live, you try to survive. And so this is how measurement is used, basically. Everyone is using measurement to see where there are problems so they can fix them and show that they fix problems. Therefore, they're good and therefore they're wonderful and therefore they need a promotion. Culture is different. You're not trying to fix anything. There's nothing wrong with your culture. The co your culture is just the way it is. It's the way people behave. You're not trying to fix people. If they behave the way they behave, there's a reason. People around them have behaved that way. For no particular reason, they replicate that behavior, and that becomes a social norm and therefore your culture. But there's nothing wrong with it. What you want to do is not fix it. You want to shape it. You want to build it. It's a very different approach. Whereas, usually when you use figures, you are trying to identify the gap between what you see and what you want to see. There's a gap, there's red, this is the color code that you're typically using, so it's red, therefore if it's red, I need to fix it, let me take it, and I will fix it. This is the way they think. If it's green, don't pay attention, that's right, that's good, it's going well, so don't change that. In culture, it's exactly the other way around. So think of it um, like a barbecue. What you need to fix in a barbecue is all, all those coals that are not hot yet because you want it to get hot right your red is your coals which are not hot yet you focus all your energy on this and you try to light all of those coals actually i would like to challenge this because in culture if it's about building what you want to focus on is your hot coals and blow on them we all know when we've taken care of barbecues that if you blow on the cold coal, nothing's going to happen. You're never going to be able to barbecue. 
in order for this to fly, you need to blow on what is already going well. So you need to focus on the green, check the green behaviors that are going well, and focus your energy on this and show how well it is, tell stories. It was very difficult for them when we explained that we are going to measure things, but we're not going to show them. They said, oh, come on, you know, we're not children, so you show us. And we said, no, because we want to show you much better things than that. We want to tell you stories. And we said to our CEO, our CEO was so excited with that. He said, I love it. I love it. <laughs> but when we explained to his team, they were very puzzled. We said, when we come to you, we're going to tell you stories of things that are happening in the organization. And maybe you have stories of your own, of things you've seen, and we'd like to hear that. Because those stories tell you much more than any sort of graph with colors and an action plan and mitigation plan. We are going to tell you stories of Miludi, of Jacqueline, and what they've done yesterday and the week before in their environment. Because that is culture. It was very, very hard for them to hear that. I think today they are still struggling with it. They accepted it because the CEO says he's really happy with it. So they like, well, okay, if he says he's happy, which I guess we're not going to say anything. But they, they still want to see those bloody graphs. So it's really, really funny, really funny. <laughs> uh, we do have some graphs and we show them from time to time to keep them happy. But because we've made rules very clear at the beginning that we are not going to focus on the red and we do not want them to focus on the red, but rather on the green, they know that now. And so it's safe to do it with the leadership team of the company. We are not communicating on anything like this to the whole company. That we never do. We only share stories because stories reinforce the movement. Not only do they tell you things that are really happening, but they also reinforce the movement because people see that and say, oh, it's happening. So if it's happening, two things happen in their brain. One, it's positive. I want to be part of something positive. And second, well, if it's happening, then others are doing it. And if I'm not doing it, I'm going to left, be left apart. And I want to be part of the group. Therefore, I'm going to do it too. Those two powerful forces are the ones that we are using when we report on culture. Brilliant. Any particular hints or suggestions you'd give to anybody thinking about embarking on ONA for their organization? Be prepared to be amazed. That's one thing. Be amazed by what you're going to discover. And be amazed by the incredible energy you're going to see in people. The second thing is be prepared to unlearn. I've shed the light on a few examples of things that were really counterintuitive or taking it in a different angle. If you are curious enough, humble enough, and ready to unlearn, you're going to love the ride. Be patient and resilient. Because when you talk about people and behaviors and influence, it is not the same pace as the pace that the business is usually operating. Business operates by the quarter, usually. You don't change behaviors of people in a quarter. I need to be resilient and patient. This resilience is just being kind to yourself and being kind to others, knowing that it's not an easy thing to do. 
and be patient because you're kind. Wow. Thank you. Love it. <laughs> Thanks so much for, <laughs> for sharing all this with our listeners today and uh, going forward as well. For anybody who wants to learn more, you can see uh, Nicholas's presentation, the keynote on the ONA Summit website, onasummit.com. There's a membership portal there and you can join in and watch Nico's video as well as some other videos as well. Anything you want to add before we close off? Well, that, that summit that you talk about, I didn't talk too much about what the, the topic of our discussion no. today. So your listeners may be a little bit surprised, but it, it's like we all are, right? We all have multiple identities. We, we like and do many different things in our lives. I just want to encourage the, your listeners to to be proud of all their different identities and just uh, keep hoping because uh, humans are beautiful. I get asked all the time what people can do on a Monday morning after listening to one of my episodes. In this case, I think the answer is to step back from your daily patterns to observe them and to spend time just noticing what you do under certain conditions how does the organization respond to certain conditions and to take in the patterns that you're witnessing as information for what needs to stay the same and what can change. There's been a lot of opportunities with the pandemic to really do some innovative work in terms of workplaces. Those have been catalyzed by the fact that we people couldn't go into work. So th this meant that there was a reconnection to values that had meaning. Many more reconnections and further disconnections took place. This is then opportunity to reconnect at a more deep level. And so the leadership challenge that I see is to do that. Exactly. Go deeper. A step into yourself, not just put the mask on and go in the morning, but look in the mirror and say, which part of me do I want to bring into work today? And then to really look at bringing the deeper aspects of yourself forward. In this episode, Nicholas did an excellent job of illustrating what the difference is between a mental capacity to shut things off or on and a heart-centered capacity to really listen more deeply to what's going on. What we're talking about now is a much more balanced level of leadership where you can indeed bring your whole self to work. My name is Donna Jones. My work involves uh, self-development as well as organizational growth. It's like personal growth for business, if you will, and workplace cultures so that they are more human, more connected, not only with our natural world, but also with each other. You can find me on LinkedIn and on Twitter at EP Donna Jones, as well as on Instagram. Please share this podcast, this episode with people you feel will benefit. Sign up for my newsletter on Substack, Donna Jones, D-A-W-N-A -A Jones, where I take episodes like this and expand on them, providing you with research links if you'd like to do more of your own research.